Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We're currently studying in the book of James, Faith That Works. For more information, go to our website, EdenWorshipCenter.com. We're beginning our new series on James. We're going to be here in the next couple months digging for faith that works. And I, I think if you've grown up in the church, or even if you're a relative newcomer to the church, you've discovered that there's something of real, genuine faith that a lot of people have. That people have this, this belief, this desire to know the God that it seems like the whole world acknowledges is out there. You, you wouldn't have uh, atheists being so vehement about their claims if somewhere deep inside there wasn't this acknowledgement that there's a God I have to fight against if I want to not believe in him. There, there's no organized societies of people against leprechauns. It, it just doesn't exist. Because they, leprechauns don't pose any threat to their worldview. They, they don't impose morality. They, they don't say, this is how you ought to live. This is a God who you have to serve. And so we're not just looking for genuine faith. We're, we're looking for faith that actually works. Because you can be genuine and you can still have quite a few things wrong. And I think before we throw too many stones, we have to admit that most of us have been there at one point in our life. And if we were actually fairly clear-minded, we would probably admit that in a few areas right now, we're probably there right now, we just don't see it. And so, as we dig into God's Word, because this is, this is literally all we got. We can't have great sermons, we can't have great teachers or smart teachers and depend on that, because people are fallible, they mess up all the time. What we base our life and our faith and our eternity on is the unchanging Word of God. Amen? Yeah, that's true. Uh, so we want to be looking at faith that works. That's, that's faith that's effective in my life, that, that actually gets things done in my life, as well as faith that works because I believe something, it should be demonstrated in my life. It should be demonstrated in my work. So we're going to read James chapter 1. We're only going to read one verse out of this. We're going to read a whole bunch of other verses, but we're only looking at the first verse, and we're going to work on introducing this guy to you, James, and this book. So if you would stand to your feet, we're going to read James chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. James 1, 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. God, our heart this morning is that you would not only open your word to us, but God, you would open us to your word. Lord, so many times we approach your word and, and we say, God, help me understand it. Help me figure it out. Help me be the one who sees through and into this. And we're God, that we need to do that. We need to have an understanding of your word, but our prayer just as much should be, God, open me up. Let your word see through into me. God, let my heart be unveiled before your word. I pray, God, that we would see ourselves in the story of James. I pray that we would see ourselves in the, all the commands that he's going to give us to obedient faith, uh, and that we would, we would not only see where we fail, we would see where we got it right, and we would see your glory that is put on display when your people struggle to do things your way. So bless as we study your word. God, I pray that your word would reign supreme in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I promise for those of you who don't like book studies that I'm going to do the best I can to not make this some boring introduction thing, uh, although there are going to be some elements that we're going to have to cover as part of that. Uh, this is a book that was written by Jesus's half-brother. Uh, they shared the same mother, but different fathers. <laughs> right? That's kind of how it works. Uh, now, one of the things that we need to address right up front is there uh, is a rather law, 
large and loud skeptical cry to that that says uh, he can't be Jesus' brother because Mary was a virgin all of her life. Well, uh, Matthew, uh, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of scriptures. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down, read it later. Matthew 125 actually tells us uh, this incredible, miraculous thing that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. That Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. It makes no claim that Mary continued in perpetual virginity the rest of her life. And let me, let me just add something in here. There have been several things throughout the centuries where we try and make people look more like God rather than reminding that people are fallen and God is great. That's one of the things that's happened to Mary here. And let me just say, if that's true, Joseph got the worst deal ever. Right? He marries, he marries this, this incredibly beautiful, virtuous woman who an angel shows up and goes, blessed are you among all the women of the earth. Like he got the ultimate hottie. And then God's like, mm-mm. Right? Now, I don't think that's just the reason not to believe this. Uh, but think about it. Joseph had to be the stepfather to the Messiah. And then once we, we read the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old, Joseph disappears and is never heard from again. We don't know if that means he died an untimely early death, but something happened. So my guess is that's not the most natural reading. And one of the things we're going to be pushing for is what's the most natural reading of this rather than trying to read something in so that we can prove a point. Uh, Here's a scripture I have for you. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. People are responding to Jesus in his hometown. And they say, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? The brother of James and Joseph, which is actually a transliteration of Joseph. So that dude's name was Junior, right? He'd fit in around here. And Judas, which, by the way, like worst brother name ever for Jesus. He made the rest of his life like, hey, how's it going? What's your name? Oh, I'm Judas. Oh, no, no, no. Not that Judas. Yeah. Uh, and Simon, are, his not, are not his sisters here with us? I, there's been a lot of attempts to say the word for brother is actually similar to the word for cousin. And so they're, they're probably just cousins. You really only arrive at that if you're trying to prove perpetual virginity. Other than that, that, that's not the natural reading here. Nobody goes, and they came to Matt, and his mother was with them, and then all his cousins. Like, that's, it's a little strange. We, it could happen. It's possible. It's just not necessarily probable. Uh, Paul says in Galatians 1.19... Uh, right before he's telling the story of of his introduction to the apostles and in, uh, what is it? I want to make sure I get it. Galatians 1, 18, right before it, he says, I went to Jerusalem and he spent 15 days with Peter, which had to be crazy. Can you imagine Paul and Peter for 15 days locked together in a room that had to go a little nuts? Verse 19, here's what, here's Paul's testimony. He says, I saw none others other than Peter, except for James, the Lord's brother. So we have Paul's testimony saying, that this is his brother. So we're just going to, if you want to argue this, if you want to dig it, if you want to do a lot of Greek studies, uh, God bless you. Come back, talk to me later. Uh, we're not going to take up a whole bunch of more time talking about that. We're just going to operate on the assumption that the, this is Jesus' brother. Although uh, I will make the argument, I don't think it matters for what we're going to talk about because family's family. And his family had a big problem with him. That, that was Jesus' life all the way through up until the resurrection. I, I read a story 
incredibly ironic. It just happened this week in Anchorage, Alaska, is where the story came. In fact, it came out on October 11th of Karen and Jay Priest, who were a middle-aged couple. At 3 o'clock in the morning, the police knock on their door, and they tell them that their 29-year-old son, Justin, has just been killed in a car crash. It was a high-speed crash. The uh, car is demolished. Uh, The body is virtually unrecognizable. There was alcohol involved. And the mom later said, she said, I I didn't think that's, he doesn't sound like a dangerous driver. And he doesn't sound like the type of person who would drink and drive. But they're just, they're absolutely devastated. He's 29 years old. And so he's got a a rather steady girlfriend. So they go at 5 o'clock in the morning to his girlfriend's house to break this heartbreaking news that they've been wrestling with for the last two hours that their, her boyfriend is dead. Their son is dead. So it's the mom and dad and the little brother show up at the doorstep. This actually happened. It was in Juneau, Alaska. Uh, they knock on the door at about 5.30 in the morning, at which point somebody had got up to let a dog out at 5.30. They knock on the door, which instantly opens, and there stands their dead son alive and well at the door who has no idea what's going on. Now, keep this in mind. He has no idea what's going on, at which point the father instantly bursts into tears and is weeping uncontrollably. The mother collapses. The brother is just standing there aghast in shock, can't believe what's going on. It takes quite a bit before they can get the story out that the police came and told us you were dead. Like a day or two later, they're they're still just reeling from this emotional roller coaster that they've been on. I want to suggest that's almost exactly what happens to James. And we're going, to, we're going to talk about this in a little bit. This is what changes him. He saw his brother die. He knew he was dead. He, he went through this whole mourning process until all of that changed. And Jesus, one-on-one, goes and meets with him to let him know that he's alive. Now, let, me, let me just let you in on something. Okay, This is sort of a parenthesis for where this whole sermon's going. If the police had come to this family after they had seen their son at the door and said, no, seriously, your son is dead. He's gone. He's dead. There is zero chance they could ever have been talked out of it. Because they saw it right in front of them. This is the reason why these early apostles, even these brothers and sisters and mother of Jesus, who wrestled to believe in him, his whole ministry as soon as the resurrection happened, are willing to give their life no matter what. Because they knew it. A hundred percent, this thing is true. He wrote this, James wrote this, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote it in the mid-40s. And I'm going to talk to you a little bit about dates, not because I want to bore you with dates, but because there's some really important stuff that we have to get understanding when this was written. It was about the same time that Paul is starting his outreaches to all these Gentiles. He's going to the church in Galatia. He's going to Corinth. He's going to all these different places. And Gentiles are beginning to be saved, but this is primarily still a Jewish thing. Christianity is still primarily Jews coming to faith in their Messiah. So I want to look at two things in this. Number one, why did he take so long to write it down? Now we hear mid-40s, like Not like 2040, but like 0040. We go, oh man, that's real close. But we're still talking 12 to 15 years after Jesus was crucified. Why do you wait so long? The second thing is, there's a lot of people out there, uh, including Martin Luther, who didn't really like the book of James. In fact, my favorite quote 
about that is uh, Luther said that James was, was a book of strawy fluff. Because Luther was a big, uh, and the righteous will be justified by faith alone. And yet James seems to suggest some things that faith without works is dead. But there have to be works. So a lot of people have argued, well, maybe James and Paul are actually contradicting each other, and the Bible contradicts each other. That way we can't believe it. Stick with me here, because these dates are actually going to be important. Let's look first at why he waited so long, 12 to 15 years. Seems like a long time until you read the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, it seems like every time they're turning around, they're reminding people that the return of Christ is imminent. Any minute, Jesus could come back. They, they expected that within their lifetime, Jesus would return. Remember when Jesus was ascending into heaven and they just stand there watching until the angels go, okay, seriously, guys, you can go home now. He will return the same way you saw him go. It's just not going to be today. Yet they had this anticipation it would be within their lifetime. Now, this is in a time where it took forever to write stuff down. There were no printing presses. So you don't, you don't quick write out a book of the Bible and then print it off and give it to everybody. It took forever to meticulously scribe these things. And feeling this urgency, what they did was they went and preached the gospel everywhere. Read the book of Acts. They're preaching here. They're preaching there. They're declaring in the streets until something happens. Remember I said this was written about mid-40s? In about 44, James, the brother of John who is one of the disciples. Uh, he's the one uh, throughout the Gospels that it get, keeps referring to. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Uh, James and John got this nickname, the Sons of Thunder. That guy. Not, not the James who wrote this book, but the disciple was martyred in AD 44. Acts chapter 12, if you're taking notes, verse 2, actually gives us the account of it. And something changed. Something happened in these guys who felt this drive to go and preach the gospel, they thought, there's a chance we're not going to get out of this alive. In fact, they were correct. That none of them were going to survive this. And there's a chance that our eyewitness account, our firsthand story of what Jesus did and what he accomplished, it's going to be lost if we don't write it down. And almost immediately, James begins to pen this book. It's the earliest book that we have that we know of in the New Testament. Almost immediately followed, within three or four years, Paul, who is reaching out to these Galatians, and every step they're trying to kill him, he starts writing that book of Galatians in about AD 48. So within three or four years later, these guys start to pick up this sense of urgency. We have to write these things down, or it could be lost, and it's too important. We can't let that happen. That's the reason there's a little bit of time, but after that, you see them start to pen the books of the Bible, uh, these accounts of the New Testament and the gospel as quickly as possible. So let's look at the second thing. Do Paul and James contradict each other? Uh, here's, uh, let me just give you the two basic drifts that we have in the church. This is the church then. This is the church today. We drift towards legalism or we drift towards license. Legalism is this idea that we're going to create rules and laws that say, if you do this, God will save you. If you do this or don't do that, you're in. License, on the other hand, is this tendency to over-spiritualize all the things of life, even when our works don't seem to back it up. Oh man, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a Christian. Because I'm a Christian, I can do anything I want to. Except then your works are actually testifying against you that you're not a Christian. Those are the two basic things that 
time after time, century after century, you're going to see crop up within the church. Paul and James are writing to opposite ends of the spectrum. Remember, remember I said times and dates are important. James is writing this to predominantly Jewish believers before all the issues that Paul are going to be addressing have really come to light. He doesn't ever, and this is important, he doesn't ever say, oh, by the way, Paul's wrong. That you're not just justified by faith alone. In fact, if, if any of these issues would have been on the forefront, I think James would have talked about it a little bit differently. You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you know, like, there's an issue that this person is really sensitive and so you're real careful about the words that you use? James isn't careful. He's not careful. He's not sensitive. So that tells us one of two things. James was a jerk, which is weird because I'm going to end by reading uh, something to you that's not even uh, in the Bible. It was just an ancient historical text where all the, even the scribes and the Pharisees come to him and they say, James, we know that you are the just. That was his nickname, James the Just. That doesn't sound like he's a jerk. Or these problems aren't problems yet, so he's not worried about being careful how he says it. Galatians, on the other hand, Paul's first book, primarily addresses this tendency that our works and this formula of works is how we earn our salvation. But that hasn't happened yet, so he's not talking about it like that. We we actually ran into this. We went to a PB&J concert, and the Rhett Walker band was there, who were super good, and they played this song called uh, Tattoos and Cigarettes. And the setup of the song is that... uh, at the end of the day, I don't think God is that concerned about tattoos and cigarettes. He cares about your heart. He cares about uh, saving you. He cares, cares about changing you from the inside. Except, I'll just be honest, and, and you guys are just going to think I'm a big whiner by the time I get done telling you all this stuff. I was sitting there having a really big problem with what they were saying. Not because I have a big problem with tattoos and cigarettes, but because we live in a culture where... The social gospel is out shouting the real gospel. You don't, you don't need Jesus. You, you don't need to confess your sin. You can just be a really good person. And you can go to church too. And, and you know, what, what about loving your neighbor? That's the chorus of the song. What about loving your neighbor? What about uh, reaching out to the poor? That's what I want to be involved in. Well, just that by itself is a social gospel. We, we had this great opportunity. I was driving home with our kids. I said, what did you guys think of that? And... Our kids were all like, there was something not quite right. And so we got a chance to talk about that. It's not that message. It's actually what was missing. Because because we know this is the case, all they had to say was, God is not that concerned about tattoos. He's not that concerned about cigarettes. He's concerned about the sin and the darkness that have captivated your heart for so long. So much so that he sent his son to die on a cross. You can be free of it if you put your hope and your trust in him and you surrender your life to him. Okay, better story. Now, can I give you the second half of the story, which I didn't even know until a couple days ago. Uh, Danielle had ordered the CD, which I'll confess, I thought about taking back after that. Uh, I'm so glad we didn't, because we got the CD. They have like two or three times on there where it's sort of like music in the background, and someone is just talking, saying exactly what I just said. Faith is all about putting your hope and your trust and your dependence on the shed blood of Jesus' cross and the power of his cross. Back on the charts, dudes. All right. So, but, but see, because those are concerns, because those are issues, I want to be careful how I talk about that. Does that make sense? 
James doesn't seem to be concerned about that. Otherwise, he would have been a little more careful and cautious not to lead people to think you can earn your way to salvation by works. So why does this matter? I think it matters because uh, you have people who are, are creating this false distinction, like, I'm of, I'm of Paul, like, I'm a real faith guy. Then you have people like, no, 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 I'm of James, I'm a real works guy. It's a false distinction. They, they were two guys arguing differently for the exact same point at different times. And the timing actually matters because if they were at the exact same time, then it looks like they're competing with each other. Does that make sense to you? That's not what's going on here. So, all right. I, I promise I won't try and make this quite that boring the rest of the time. Uh, the style of it, well, I'll just mention this briefly. Uh, he kind of wrote this in sort of an Old Testament proverb sort of way. In other words, there, there's a lot of generic commands that are in here that apply to pretty much everybody. No matter what your time, no matter what your situation, uh, not generic that it's just like a book of ethics. Uh, here's, here's an interesting fact for you. This, this book only has 108 verses. Out of the 108 verses, it has 50 imperative commands that it gives us. That means every other verse, on average, he's telling us to do something. If we believe this, we have to do something. If you believe this, you have to do something. I'm going to give you just a, a couple of examples of this. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, you have to count it joy when you meet trials. Verse 13. Let no one say that he is, when he's tempted, that I'm being tempted by God. Verse one, uh, chapter 1, 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Uh, I, there's a whole bunch more. I'm just giving you some highlights here. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves, therefore. These are huge commands. Like if you tell somebody, submit yourself. That's, that's huge. Humble yourself. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them... Pray for him. If you believe that you serve a God who loves you and heals you and delivers you and you're sick, then the first place you run to shouldn't be the doctor. It should be to Jesus. It should be, man, I am really struggling. I need to call for the elders and have them pray for me. Can I, can I just make a, a real slight parenthesis here? We generally do this backwards. We have the expectation, I'm sick. I, I'm sick. And so what needs to happen is somebody from the church needs to run to me and uh, pray for me. I think that actually accomplishes the opposite of what James is after here. He's after, if you believe this to be true, this is what you should do. Because if somebody in the church runs to you and prays for you, man, you're going to be encouraged and be like, oh, that was super nice. That was good. I hope Jesus heals me. But they actually demonstrated that they believe it. You didn't demonstrate it. Are you tracking with me? It's important. I, I, we actually were talking about that in the pastor's meeting. I'm like, that has to change. We, we have to actually start believing that our God is a God who is sovereign over all things. Even our earthly struggles. Do people get healed every single time? No. Do we know which ones that's going to be? Nope. So we should pray about them all. Amen. Because God's in control. All right, let's, let's jump into some things I, I think you're going to identify with a little bit better. James is a book that was written by a guy who didn't believe in his big brother. 
This is, I, I want you to try and step into James's shoes. Usually when we talk about the Bible, we're like, now Jonah isn't you, right? Don't put yourself in Jonah's shoes because Jonah represents a lesser version of Jesus. Right? This is actually the one time you get to do that. You get to step into James's shoes and think what it's like to be him. Uh, for most of Jesus' earthly ministry, James and the rest of his family didn't really get it. Yet here's where we identify. Because you're here this morning, something has happened that has changed what you think and what you identify with who Jesus is. God wants to use that to change the whole direction of your life, the same way that he did for James. Because James actually tells us in this first verse something humongous. He says, I, James, look at, look at your Bibles, James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's his brother. That, that's his brother that he didn't even believe in, and he puts Jesus on the same level as God. Not only does he put him on the same level of God, he says he is not only the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for who will save the people, he is Lord. He is the ruler over everybody, including me. That's huge. Folks, I I pray that that is the starting point for your relationship with God, that you see Jesus in such a light that you say, this guy has got to be my Savior, and if that's true, he has got to be my Lord. He's got to be the master over everything in my life. This, by the way, uh, coming 15 years after he saw his brother crucified. That is one of the strongest testimonies to the resurrection that there is. You know why? Because even, even crazy families that you see on the news, when somebody goes nuts and everybody knows they're nuts and they have a rather public execution like Jesus did, the families do the best that they can to sort of either distance themselves from it or talk about the, the little guy's childhood. So he wasn't always that bad. He, when we knew him, he was a little bit better. James doesn't do that. James not only jumps in, he's going to end up dying for him, and then he's going to pass that ministry on to another brother who's going to end up dying for him. Something happened after this death that actually brought them closer to believing rather than further away. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Remember, Peter and James lived for all those years together in Jerusalem, working together in the church sharing a lot of the same thoughts. 2 Peter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow clever, devised myths. We made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, catch that word, eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, Peter is specifically referring here to being on the Mount of Transfiguration, and James wasn't there. Peter's talking about going up on a mountain with Peter, James, and John and seeing Jesus sort of, as it were, take off that earthly robe and be robed again with glory from all eternity. He says, I saw it. Now, James wasn't there, but James got to see it another time. Where he as well says, and I'm an eyewitness to what happened here. You ever ever do something... You ever think something, have anticipations, and it doesn't turn out the way you thought it would? Get disappointed, disillusioned a little bit. I uh, read a story about 
one of those guys, and my Uncle Galen has been a school teacher for a long time. Uh, he'll identify with this. There's guys, probably like me, who come into the classroom year after year. They're just trouble. Right, right from the beginning, it maybe it's not so much that they're not that bright. They just never apply themselves. Any of the teachers in here saying amen? I've seen them, right? So this teacher is giving a test, and he's got one of those guys in the classroom. Never tries, never applies himself, shows up late. It just, he's, he's sort of like living life checked out. And he shows up with this, this coin, and as the, the test starts, he's flipping this coin, writing something down, flipping a coin, writing something down, flipping a coin, writing something down. And the teacher, he's basically to the place where I've given up. I, he's an idiot. I can't fix idiot. So, uh, you know, do your thing, big guy. Well, the hour goes by, and as people get done, they can leave. And so everybody else in the class has left. And here sits this kid flipping this coin, checking it. And the longer the teacher watches it, the more it frustrates him. So he walks over to him. He's like, seriously, the hour's up. You're done. You're not even trying anyways. What are you doing? You're clearly just flipping a coin for your answers. And the kid's like, yeah, I know. I'm checking my answers. You got to think about that one a second. See, we kind of have this idea that religions in the world are like flipping a coin. Now, we would never flip a coin to check the answer when we flipped a coin, right? Because we know that doesn't work. It's just totally random. Yet that's how people think religion works. Well, I'm a Christian because, you know, flip of the coin. I, I live in America. My parents were Christians. I, they grew up there. That's what they taught me. I, I'm, I'm an atheist because, you know, I, I grew up in, you know, going to university and my parents were atheists. We've never believed in God. Uh, so I, I'm an atheist. I, I'm, I'm Muslim. I'm Buddhist. I'm whatever these things. Just sort of the flip of the coin, where you live, what you've been taught. I want to say that people don't die for a flip of a coin. You die for something when you wholeheartedly believe it to be true. When you've seen something so life-changing, so life-altering that you say, I cannot live the same way that I used to live before. A guy named Dilip Joseph wrote a book called Kidnapped by the Taliban. He was an aid worker, and he's a doctor. He was kidnapped by the Taliban, held for a while in Afghanistan, and... uh, the United States sent the U.S. Navy SEALs in. It was actually SEAL Team 6, the same ones who took out Osama bin Laden, uh, in to rescue this guy. So he tells the story of being held captive for, for all this time, and suddenly he hears gunshots, he hears explosions, and he hears his name. Shouted from the, the back of the room, is Dillip Joseph here? He says, it hit me. This is actually a rescue. I'm actually being rescued. Problem was that in the mission, though it was successful and he was saved, and I'm going to give you a chance to hear from him in a second. So if you guys uh, want to make sure that the sound is turned on so we can hear the video. Uh, Chief Petty Officer, 28-year-old Nicholas Sheck was killed. Highly decorated U.S. Navy SEAL dies to save this guy's life. I want you to hear his response to that. Go ahead.
one seal was killed. It's, it's the ultimate sacrifice. I can't think, you know, be more thankful for not only the SEAL, but the entire SEAL team for what they did. Um, they've had to count their cost in doing it. Certainly, you know, when they, when they sign up for this, they, they probably have to count the cost even then when, when they sign up for, uh, uh, for the military. But to actually give your, give your life to save somebody else is, is certainly the ultimate sacrifice. He died to save your life? He, he died to save my life. It, it is hard to live with that idea of somebody died for my sake. The, the best you can do is honor them through your life. And that's exactly what I want to do. Can you hear that echo in what he's saying? He died to save my life. It's hard to live with the idea that somebody died for my sake. The best that I can do is honor him through my life. That's exactly what I want to do. Can you hear the echo of the gospel in that? We're not talking about, I, I think it's a good idea, by, by the flip of a coin I ended up in this religion, and it seems pretty much okay, it seems pretty much true, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and live by most of it. Can you hear the, the epic difference between that and realizing the revelation of who Jesus is, his, his death for you, for your sin, that causes you to say, I have to live differently because of that. I'm not earning his death because it's already accomplished, but because it's true, I have to live my life in a different way. That's what happened to James. He was so convinced of the death and resurrection, and because of that, the substitutionary atonement, that he said, I cannot live in the same way that I used to. So I want to look just real briefly here at how this works out. Uh, it starts off, we're going to give you a little bit of a timeline, starting from they think he's crazy, they kind of hope he fails, they see him resurrected, they end up worshiping him, and they're ready to die for him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 says this, While Jesus was still talking to the crowds, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Right, so Jesus is in this situation of talking to the disciples and his mother and brothers come looking for him. Now, so far, this sounds, sounds pretty good. Unless you read the New Testament sort of as a whole and connected, because Mark in his gospel gives us the other side of this. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, same account. He's in the same house. His mother and brothers come. His family heard of it and they went out to seize him for they said he's out of his mind. This is the Virgin Mary. Are you tracking with me here? This is the person we've ascribed sainthood to, gets to a place where her Messiah son has lost his mind. He has derailed. We have to go and save him. James and the other brothers show up because, number one, they think he's crazy. And you deal with crazy long enough, and you go, I can't fix this. Have you ever, you ever had somebody in your life who you just about give up on? Seriously, go wreck your life. Come back and talk to me later. Maybe there'll be a chance. That's sort of the second step. Uh, they think Jesus is going to fail. In fact, I would say they're hoping he's going to fail so that maybe he gets it out of his system now before it escalates and he ends up getting killed for this thing. Right? Some parents I know have prayed prayers like that for their kids. God, I see him going in the wrong direction. Please let him train wreck now so that it doesn't end up killing him later. Here's what it says. John chapter 7, verse 3. So his brother said to him, Leave here 
go to Judea, it's the, the feast is going on, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he wants to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. If we stopped reading at verse 4, we would go, these guys are on his team. But verse 5 tells us, for not even his brothers believed in him. Here's why, why scripture is important. If you don't read this in context, you could think, oh yeah, man, they were cheerleaders. That was sarcasm. Because it tells us they don't believe in him, look seriously. You think you're the Messiah? Great. Go do it in public. You can't just hide around in back rooms and claim to be the Messiah. Go prove it, dude. Go make a giant fool of yourself, since that's what you seem set on doing. At least you can get out of your system now and maybe not end up dead. That's sort of the direction they're coming from. They're almost hoping in the short term that he fails. Then a lot of time goes by, and they see Jesus resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 says, For I delivered to you, this is Paul's voice here, I delivered to you of first important what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. The eyewitnesses can still testify. I can make outlandish claims because you can go ask them. You following this? Catch this next part. Though some have fallen asleep, verse 7 says, then he appeared to James. Just all by himself. That doesn't tell us the setting. It doesn't tell us the context. I would love to have that glimpse of what that looked like when the risen Savior, big brother, stepped into the room. And everything that you thought and wondered and doubted and hoped and dreamed about came true in an instant. What must that have looked like? This, let, let me just give you a little parenthesis here. This comes exactly on the heels, when, when Jesus does this, exactly on the heels of saying, I'm going to reveal myself. We, we read this in Matthew 12. I'm going to reveal myself in the sign of Jonah. That Jonah, who wasn't able to accomplish it because he was sinful and fallen and weak and didn't really care about humanity's problems, that the greater Jonah has come. That I'm wiser than Solomon. By the way, that was the type of stuff he was saying when his family went after him. Like, dude, you can't say that stuff. Nobody's wiser than Solomon. Jesus claimed to be. The whole book of James is about, if we believe this is to be true, this is how we should live. If you believe Jesus is the Messiah, if you believe he is your Savior, if you believe he is your Lord, it should impact the way that you live. We should live like that rescued guy who the rest of our life, every single time we think about what those guys did to break in and save him and that it cost one of those soldiers his life, He's going to be changed by that forever. How much more when it's the king of glory who steps in to our fallen humanity to save us? Here's the last step. Once they've seen that, or second to the last step, they see Jesus as God, and they worship him. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Remember, this is the same family that went to collect him because he was insane, tells us, All these with one accord, this is before the day of Pentecost, all these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, 
the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Even before they saw him, something had started to change in their hearts. Even before that they, they knew that it was true, it had started to change. When they see him, it's confirmed. When all of that happens in their lives, it's 100% undeniable. And God, I don't know what's coming next because Jesus already was ascended into heaven, but I'm going to stay and hang out and I'm going to be part of it. That's an unshakable faith. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 13, we get another glimpse of James several years later. Because God has been doing amazing things in the New Testament church. Paul has been sharing the gospel with all these Gentiles. And the one thing Jews thought never could happen is Gentiles are getting saved. And now we've got this problem. What are we going to do with them? Like, do we, do we make them all become Jews? Do all the guys have to get circumcised? Late in life? Right, what, what restrictions are we putting on them? So they call what's known as the Council of Jerusalem. We find it in Acts 15, 13. What do we do with these Gentiles? And everybody talks. Paul's there. Barnabas is there. Peter's there. All of, these are all the head leaders of the church. Everybody talks. And then once they've all got it out on the table, there's one dude who is sitting at the head of the table who's giving direction to the whole church in Jerusalem. And that's James. Next chapter 15, verse 13, he says, Okay, brothers, listen to me. We've talked about it. You've had your ideas. I'm going to tell you where we're going. In verse 19, he actually says, It's my judgment that we're doing this. This guy has moved from doubter and skeptic and thinking his big brother's going to embarrass him and he's going to embarrass the family to the guy who's willing to stand up among the strongest believers in the world and say, This is where we're going. I'm 100% on board. In fact, I'd like to drive if you don't mind. That's awesome. That's a huge change that has happened in this guy's life. And the reason is, because the last one is true, he has seen Jesus as someone worth dying for. That the gospel has changed him to where now, this is something I'm willing to give my life for. Now, we're not given the record of this, but outside of Scripture, we're given record that in 62 AD, James was martyred. Eusebius, who's a uh, church father, quotes a couple guys. He quotes Josephus. He quotes a guy named Hegesippus and Clement of Alexandria. Uh, we have the Josephus stuff. We have some fragments of Hegesippus. But actually what Eusebius quotes is fragments we don't have, which is awesome because that means we get to see what we don't have as Eusebius quotes it. Uh, let me just read to you from that. This is the account of the scribes, the Pharisees coming to deal with James says, they came, therefore, to the body of James. This is the living body. It's kind of a weird way to say it, but evidently we think writing in King James makes things better. And said, we entreat thee, restrain the people, for they have gone astray in their opinion of Jesus, as if he were the Christ. This sounds like today. Seriously, pastors in Houston, we entreat thee, restrain the people, because they're actually acting like the Bible's true. If you haven't seen the Houston thing, get online. I'm not going to take up the rest of our time talking about that. Here's what they say. Uh, they say, For we all listen to thy persuasion, since we, as well as all the people, bear thee testimony that thou art just. Remember, that's his nickname, James the Just. In other words, they're saying, we trust you. This is going to get good. Just a second here. Do thou therefore persuade... I love it. Do thou therefore persuade the people... 
not to entertain erroneous opinions concerning Jesus for all the people, as well as we, listen to your persuasion. Take thy stand for Jesus and all the people, and we all listen. Take your stand upon the summit of the temple. Go stand on top of the temple and proclaim in that elevated place words plainly audible for all the people to hear. Here's what they asked him to do. James, please go up. We'll, we'll all go together. We'll stand on top of the temple wall. It's a huge, uh, wide wall. We'll stand up there together. And everybody trusts you. And you can look down. And you can say, listen to me. My big brother was a good guy, but he wasn't God. He was not the Messiah. Stop following him like that. Here's James's response. It's been up there the whole time. <laughs> James Boldly, to the scribes, Pharisees, dismay, James boldly testified, Christ himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and shall come on the clouds of heaven. This is actually recorded. This was like, like just two, 300 AD. They write these words. The scribes and Pharisees said to themselves, we have not done well in procuring this testimony to Jesus. Those words would be echoed centuries later by Ron Burgundy. Well, that escalated quickly. Here's what we wanted. We wanted you to stand on the temple and say, Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not God. Don't worship him. Except the guy that we trust and everybody else trusts just said, nope, he is the Messiah. He's sitting at the right hand of God and he will return one day. So here's what they did. They said, James, we're still going up to the top of the temple wall. But if you won't say it, then we're going to throw you off the wall to prove that what you have said is not true and you're going to die in front of the people. And they took him up to the top of the temple wall and history tells us they throw him down. And sometimes, anybody ever prayed for healing before? This is not one of those healings you want to pray for. He survives the fall. I don't know what kind of brutal, mangled thing that did to his body, but he crawls into some sort of a praying position because his other nickname was Camel Knees. His reputation for prayer. He begins to pray words that his big brother had prayed a few years before. Father, please forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And so his broken, praying body at the bottom of the wall to the temple, they picked up stones and they stoned him until he was dead. That's how much he believed in his big brother. Now, here's what happened next. He'd been working with Simon, another brother of Jesus, who then in his place becomes the bishop of Jerusalem, serves there for 40 years, doing the exact same thing until the Romans come in and crucify him. I want you to think about this. Families don't give multiple sons to die for crazy people. We don't do it. And yet how many times have hearts been moved by truth and justice and been willing to make the ultimate sacrifice? This is some of the strongest evidence for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, that his family sees it. The family who are skeptics and doubters, and we're going to spend a couple months reading this book from a guy who says, because I know this is true, it doesn't matter what I feel like. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what today brings. It doesn't matter what tomorrow brings. I will not be shaken. And in fact, my life will reflect the glory of God. Because belief and faith in something became a life and death 
I will work for something. He believed in something. He believed in someone, and that translated in willing to live or willing to die for something. James was an eyewitness, and my prayer is that as we spend time in this book, and we will do the same thing that he has done. We've, we've already marched through books like Romans and Galatians, and that now we will come to James, and we will hear Jesus' brother stand up and say, Brothers, listen to me. Listen to me as I tell you, if you believe this, this is how we should live. This is how we honor him. So I want to I want to close by just singing a song together. It is I believe one of the oldest recorded Christian hymns that we have. In fact, it's the most widely sung four lines on the planet. And when we recorded it a couple years ago, we added a line that I I I think adds a great dynamic to where James was, that because we recognize who God is, that we're going to choose to worship. We're going to choose to bow down at Jesus' feet. So would you just stand together and let's close in singing.